Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Battle of the Atom. This is the weekly X-Men podcast, where we rank every X-Men story from A to Z. I'm Adam. And I am Zach. And Adam, guess what time it is? What time is it, Zach? Uh, it's time for another edition of X-Men Update. ba 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 Do-do-do-do-do-do. X-Men Update. X-Men Update. Update me, Zach. <laughs> I know this is what people care about not even a minute into this podcast so I want to get the good stuff out of the way uh, you know how I've been cursed with reading all of X-Man oh gosh yeah you meant literally an update about, about X-Man um, yeah I'm yeah, not sure people are segment. really or are people really okay go ahead last week I believe <laughs> you were talking about how he's really the not the star of the show <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's still bad. Uh, I had to suffer through Onslaught, which is just as bad. Ooh, that's it's so bad. Any book. Onslaught's going to do bad on this list. But Madeline Pryor is now part of the Hellfire Club, and her and Nate kissed for a hot second before they realized how not related <laughs> but very related they were. <laughs> that's a bad idea regardless of the reality, right? Yes, oh, and boy. that's where I have stopped. Those okay. are some bad comics, but we don't have bad comics today. Do you know why? Uh, because we are doing some good ones. I, I think we've got some cool stuff here today. We got some cool stuff here today. And the reason we have some cool stuff is because of Patreon supporter Nir Ravel. Nir went on over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files, chipped in as little as $2 a month. Mm-hmm. And now he's got requests. He's got requests out the wazoo. And... Do you know what his request this time was? I believe he did X-Men Icons uh, Chamber. That is the four-issue miniseries by Brian K. Vaughn. And who's, who's doing art on this? Ferguson? You, Lee you got Ferguson? Lee Ferguson doing pencils. And yes. Norm Ragman doing inks with Jose Varayuba on covers. I mispronounced Jose's name. Jose's, but, uh, Jose's last name is pronounced v- Villarubia. And I know that because he was actually a professor at my college. <laughs> oh, this is this is good. You you should hit him up. Just type a, his old .edu address and Jose, we're going to send you uh, this thing. We talked about one of your comics. Fun fact, it's very good. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've actually talked to Jose in person since like the year 2000. So he probably would not remember who I was. And that's probably OK. That's that's not the connection I was going to get about. <laughs> let's be clear. This story about an X-Man going to college. Yeah. Yeah. So Chamber, um, Chamber's going back to school. I mean, he's doing it undercover, but uh, it's a pretty fun premise. It is an interesting premise. So let's start. Let's be because this is set at such a specific time in X-Men history. Yeah, I was going to say, we should probably provide some context as to when this is happening, right? Right. This was released October 2002 is when the first issue came out. So this is near the you know end of the first third of the Grant Morrison run. Mm-hmm. Um, so the X-Men are 
celebrities at this point. Ecstatics is going strong. Mutants are a you know hated and feared by some, but admired and seen as a subculture by others. There's a ton of them. So now instead of being this pocket group of you know a hundred people at most, there's thousands and millions of mutants out there. And a lot of the X-Men stories at the time really spearheaded by what was going on in uh, New X-Men by Morrison. We're talking about what does it mean if mutants aren't just a, you know, strike force in a school, but what if they're a subculture? And Mm -hmm. that has provided some of the most interesting things that X-Men has done before or after. And I'm not just talking about this series. This is where we get stuff like uh, uh, the uh, the Morlock series by Johns that we've both taken a shine to and some other yes. really good stuff came out of this status quo. Well, and we've I think we've uh, traipsed into this territory and this time period a couple of different times over the course of doing the show. Um, but Vaughn is doing some interesting stuff with it here, I think. Yeah, here's the um, thing. The basic... Here's the thing. I yeah, got to go ask you. I got to ask you, Adam. Yeah. Do you think this Brian K. Vaughn guy might be good at comics? <laughs> he just he just might have a future in the industry. <laughs> he may be very talented, guys. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> he might be able to write not one but two of the you know all time great runs of comics. Like he could probably yeah. do that. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because reading this, um, I feel like there's a voice here that is similar to the right early voice that we hear in runaways. Um, you know, the way he writes dialogue with the characters here, um, has a similarity to the way that, 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 uh, that series is done and it's appreciated. You mm-hmm. know, I think it, I think it rings pretty true. No, he, it's important that Vaughn is able to write good, youthful feeling, but still emotionally resonant and not, you know, howdy fellow kids style dialogue. real talented at that because this story it takes place at a college and more than that dealing with how different people from different parts of the social structure are viewing a you know new radical subculture and it's Mm -hmm. it's dealing with issues that have so much nuance that it's not even funny. I mean, you talk about, you know, there a lot of people talk about how X-Men are literal social justice warriors, Mm -hmm. but this is unlike most X-Men comics is actually talking about and dealing with the ramifications of social justice issues. It deals with questions of, you know, how other people may react to affirmative action. This is not, Mm-hmm. boilerplate racists are bad this is getting into a much deeper level that x-men almost never touches on and i think it's fascinating how they deal with that yeah it has a lot of nuance um the basic premise is that there is a new york college esu um that has started letting mutants attend and um it's basically seen as an affirmative action ploy by many of the students and the community at large but um, why Chamber is there is uh, he's essentially there to play detective, a a mutant student or sort of a uh, almost like a gay straight alliance. There's like a human mutants, uh, you know, mm-hmm. togetherness group that has exploded. And it's believed that it's a almost like a terrorist act. And Chamber is there to figure out who done it. And uh, the characters that he meets along the way are pretty interesting. Um, he sees 
humans, he sees mutants, he sees outliers, um, and all of them sort of represent some different facets of the community, which is pretty interesting. It is great. Can I ask you this? I got to ask, who's your favorite? Yeah. Who's your favorite character that they introduce in here? Because I know mine. <laughs> oh, geez. It's probably the guy wearing the Magneto t-shirt. Are you talking about Neutrino uh, Annihilator? <laughs> Neutrino Annihilator? And the Magnetic who does? Who does not want to be called Kirk? Um, how dare you? But uh, yeah, can I just make a brief aside? I, I was mentioning this on social media the other day, but uh, Kirk is wearing a Magneto t-shirt that is based off of Jim Lee's X-Men 1 cover. And it brings up a host of questions about continuity uh, as to how comic books and comic books covers and whether Marvel comics exist within Marvel comics. And I don't know, you could go on a a whole tangent about this, but it really does bring up some questions. Well, can I tell you what's what I like about that just in general? Yeah. He is Quentin choir in the magnetic North are the Omega game an entire year before riot at Xavier's. That's exactly what they are. They are. Mm -hmm a radical mutant group in a school just trying to be like, no, we're mutants and proud and we're better than everyone else. And Magneto was right. And y'all just got to deal with that. It's Mm -hmm. so good. (laughs) I also love that the group hangs out at CBGB's. Yes. That's uh, great. You know, isn't, isn't afraid to just, you know, tear the place apart for a fight. Okay. But look, I, I'm not a historian on, you know, the late CBGBs mourn you to I join you. But I imagine that the most famous punk club in the world probably had a few fights in it before. I can imagine that. Yeah. Probably not the fights that we see in this particular uh, mini series. But... I mean, look, fair. <laughs> uh, but we also get introduced not only to Magnetic North, but um, to the group that will feature in one of the other stories we talk about today, which is Purity, um, which is a human supremacist group uh, that is working on the campus as well. So there's, you know, there, there's a lot of interesting campus politics going mm-hmm. on here. It's it's a fascinating group of characters because Vaughn does the smart thing and does not just make everyone one dimensional. He Mm -hmm. makes everyone have multiple, almost conflicting motives in some, some cases they don't seem like, you know, no one is exactly what they seem like neutrino annihilator. He is the jerk and the punk of the story, but he also once chamber does stuff and proves himself to him. He's like, yeah, uh, some mutants died. I will actually help you with that. Like, I'm not dumb. <laughs> yeah, um, there's characters that uh, like Chamber has a roommate that is um, wheelchair bound. Um, so he's differently abled. And, you know, that's a character that has to sort of come around on Chamber. Um, and that's a, that's an interesting relationship that, that goes all the way to the very end of the miniseries. So there, there seem really smart interactions here that Vaughn's writing that I like quite a bit. Vaughn's writing is great. I think Ferguson's uh, pencil work is so strong because he can make Jono seem unworldly and other in a way that 
like the only other guy I can think of that does that well is Bachelot. Like he's so and good. He at does it. it so he does it so differently than than uh Bachelot does as well. Um he's really big on the spiraling of it and it it's it's very flame based, you know. Yeah. So it really does and and it's complemented wonderfully by uh Via Rubia's color work here. Um you know, it's very subtle color work throughout the entire series. But when Chamber lights up, those pages are really cool to watch because there's all kinds of really fun colored digital techniques that are going on there that are that are really neat. Yeah, it's it's great. It's an X-Men comic that defies expectations, that challenges the core premise of the X-Men in a way that nothing else really does. It's fantastic. Like this is on Comixology. It's not on Unlimited. But guys, it's worth buying on Comixology. Not even a question. Go throw your hard-earned cash at these four issues because it's this is a underrated gem of X-Men comics. Yeah, agreed. I mean, when you talk about it challenging the status quo, I mean, it literally does it by having Chamber talk to Cyclops about what the mission of the school should be, what he thought the mission of the school was be, and and where he thought he was going to be going throughout his life and who he was going to be helping. Um, and it helps define where he's supposed to go next and what the X-Men are supposed to be doing. I think it's really interesting stuff. It is. Now, we are in the business of not just qualitatively talking about what's interesting and what's not, but quantifying it on our big old list of every X-Men story. Number one right now is Days of Future Past. And number, da da da, da 400, not 400, oh my gosh, we've <laughs> not been doing this show that long. We haven't been doing it that long. No. Uh, what I was going to say was 141, which is The Draco. poor the draco nah you know what you know what you did uh this is better than the draco oh sure let me let me throw i want to throw out this starting point because i think it's a very interesting one and probably a okay good uh barometer for how you feel about it versus how i feel about it how do you feel about it compared to the first arc of generation x um Oh boy. Uh, we have that at number 19 on the list. I don't, I don't think it's quite as staggering as that. Um, I feel like they're very, very different artistic pieces. Um, the chamber miniseries, its strength is Vaughn's writing. I think the art is good. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it is, um, remarkable. How's that? Um, whereas the beginning of Generation X, the first couple of issues, is a, an artistic powerhouse. Um, whereas Labdell's writing in there it has some really nice, fun character touches, and I think it's great. Um, but it's interesting to see the scales, you know, balanced in different directions. Um, what are your thoughts in comparison to the, the first three issues of Gen X? I think Gen X also challenges, you know, the norm of what an X-Men comic can be. I personally mm-hmm. think that Chamber is a bit more successful at that, but I also have a love for one Chamber and two weird minis from this era. Like this 2001 to 2004 era of X-Men is what I think is probably the most interesting time those comics have, have ever been. So those get graded on a curve for me. But can I tell you what I think is very comparable to in terms of what you were talking about? Yeah. 
Flex Club, which has I was just looking at that very yeah. strong authorial voice mm-hmm. and does a lot of new and unique and interesting things. And I think as much as I love X Club, I think I like this chamber mini more. I would agree. I think it has more to say. Um, and I, I'm always a sucker for a really good whodunit. And uh, this this has some really fun, you know, detective style uh, storytelling here. So is this our new 24? Or do you want to go higher? <laughs> okay, let's 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 lay this out on the table for people who aren't looking at this Excel document. Yes. At number 23 is X-Men Volume 2, 1 through 3, Mutant Genesis, Mm -hmm. which while I think I enjoy these four issues better than those three issues, I also feel like I'm going to have an uphill battle convincing you of that. Well, I've already bumped it down uh, in our (laughs) annual special. I don't know that I could bump it. All right. Anyway, and I I definitely don't think think it's... It's it's not better than the ending of Inferno with New Mutants, with with magic. I, I mean... Okay, you know that that's sure an opinion. Okay, everyone know everyone knows my feelings on Inferno. I don't love it as much as others do. No, but, but that's I, the part I like. I know it's the best part. Yeah, it's the best part that doesn't involve uh, my my two my two boys Artie and Leech hugging and fighting goblins. But it's okay. I think this is a good number twenty four. Okay. Cool. And that, that does it for the first one. Now, we went in two different directions with the other two stories. One of them, we went in a college direction. Another story that is oddly comparable to uh, this Chamber miniseries. And another story about, you know, the X-Men icon himself as the comic of his miniseries for some reason proclaims. Uh, a story about Chamber. This from his early days in Generation X, number 10 and 11, Death Whale. This was written by Scott Lobdell. Uh, pencils on the first issue by Tom Grummet, and on the second issue by Val Semeckis. And this is this is an interesting story. I kind of forgot what this was about when I suggested, oh, wait, there's that time that Chamber fights Omega Red. We should talk about that. Yeah, and that's um, pretty much what happens. Um, Omega <laughs> Red stumbles onto campus does something very weird and somewhat psychological to Banshee, which forces white queen to go, uh, you know, sort of inspecting his history, which involves a very early version of Omega red um, while the kids go out, get their butt handed to them by Omega red. And it's up to chamber to kick some Omega red, butt. so, and he does. Yeah. 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 Um, while a, a dam operator screams about loving his job, which is terrific. <laughs> That's look, there's, there's some bad Scott Lobdell writing. In fact, there's a lot of bad Scott Lobdell writing. This is specifically good Scott Lobdell writing. Yeah. Yeah. This is fun. Uh, the book starts with them welcoming Mondo to the team. I guess he finally got introduced in an annual, right? Yep. The um, issue right before this. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's off to the races. They've got to fight, uh, you know, the bad guy in the woods. And um, I don't know. The art is stronger on the first issue, I think, than the second. Mm-hmm. And uh, this would probably be a good opportunity just to talk about our feelings about Omega Red. What are your thoughts on him as a character? Omega Red is someone I've written an entire article about. So go over to XavierFiles.com and just search for Omega Red. You'll find it. Uh, essentially... 
I think Omega Red is perfectly fine. He's got a very cool design. And he is a perfectly good jobber. He is, he can show up. He can be a bad guy with literally zero motivation. It's Omega Red <laughs> wants to do something evil. Got it. We'll stop him. You can have him show up at the, in the first you know five pages of an issue. If you just need a big opening fight scene, he's perfect for that. I never need to know any details about Omega Red. And to its, to its credit, this comic, which definitely surfed, or serves as Omega Red's origin story also says, I don't care about Omega Red. I'm more interested in Banshee. Well, it, it does give some, um, some Omega Red backstory, which we absolutely do not need. It also gets a little overly complicated with what Omega Red's powers are and why he needs to do what he needs to do, but it's really just an excuse for there to be a fight scene. So yes, there you have it. You know, I'll tell you what I do like. I do like being able to eat, to see Banshee in his previous life. Cause everyone forgets Banshee had like a whole career before he joined the X-Men. He had like a 17 year old daughter before he joined the X-Men. Yes. He is supposed to be an old guy. Um, when he joins the X-Men originally, he gets de-aged quite a bit for generation X. Um, but, uh, it is kind of fun going back. I think what doesn't work as well with the flashbacks is there's a general, um, suggestion that, you know, that Banshee was involved with Magneto before the X-Men were ever formed. And that there's sort of like a prequels worth of, of hidden history there that I, I don't know if that works as much, but it is kind of fun seeing Sean. Um, there's a, there's a really good classic X-Men backup story like this, where you get to see him on his adventures and uh, he, he makes for a good adventure character, you know? Yeah. I think Banshee's more interesting than most people give him credit for, but I think he's more interesting in potential than he is in actual, uh, in actual use. He just, I love him in generation X and I think it's probably the strongest Banshee stuff, but that's not what people remember. They remember those early Claremont issues where, you know, he's easily the member of the team that they depower so they can make room for someone else. Oh, sure. Yeah. And he, you know, he's generally lovable. Yeah. He's generally lovable. <laughs> he is. Um, so I think as you know, post or I guess, is it really post Bachalo or is it like there's a weird space where he's just not doing the book and doing covers? Yeah. For a hot second, he leaves to do, uh, I think he leaves to do some either to start or to do some more shade, the changing man. Yeah. Which is one of those series that I keep saying I should really read that. Cause that's a Bachalo and uh Peter Milligan hmm. DC nineties vertical book. And all of those are good words. I like so that. I bet I'd enjoy it a ton i've just never read it it's like there's like i don't know how many issues of shade the changing man are but i think it's in the 70s hmm. so it's doable you, you could read that um yeah but it's poorly collected so i'd have to find it all yeah but i think for early generation x this is fun you know the characters are on model um they're just doing a, a fun little adventure here there's a little bit of character progression and people getting to know each other um where do you think this lies amongst our list? So this is fine. This is a perfectly fine story. Yeah. There's nothing amazing about it. There's nothing hateful about it. 
the problem is our list has some good stories much lower than they deserve. Eh, not deserve, but lower than you might originally think. Yeah, things just stack up. Um, so this is not going to compete with some of the better stuff on this list. This is not as good as... This is not as good as... Uh, oof. I'm looking at this list. It's not as good as the Jeff Parker Exiles. Yeah, I'm I'm already which down is at that 101 right list. now. Um, that's actually a good place to look. I think this I might have enjoyed this Omega Red Red fight scene a little bit more than Final Sanction, which is just Wolverine and Cable blowing stuff up for two issues. <laughs> uh, what do you think about that? They do blow a lot of stuff up for two issues. That is true. Yeah. Uh, below that, we have that JRJR Uncanny 206 Freedom is a Four Letter Word, um, which, which is similarly was sort of like, yeah, taken on its own, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, you know, I'm looking at what's below it. Is this better than Gold Team Fighting Predators to find Mikhail? Yes. People just remember that story more because yes. it was early 90s Uncanny X Men. <laughs> I think I think putting it okay. Actually, what I would say, let's put it one spot below Phalanx Covenant because I yeah. just listened to a friend of the show, Chris Edelman, and his wife Christy have a great podcast called Chris's on Infinite Earths, where they recently had oh, former great. guest Chris Sims, you know, to make it three Chris's hmm. on Infinite Earths, uh, talk about Final Sanction, <laughs> and boy. I like it more that now. So I think this is a really good new 103. Perfect. This is Generation X 10 and 11 Death Whale. Not whale like a death whale, like a fish. Like like the scream <laughs> of a banshee. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That that you know, circle gets the square. A plus A plus Lobdell. Just got that one. <laughs> um well and we're going to go in a completely different direction for this last story. Cause you said we're going in two different directions. We're going back to a college environment for, um, extreme X-Men mechanics. That's how it's listed on unlimited. The trade dress does not say extreme X-Men and nothing I can find calls it extreme X-Men. So I have no idea where they're getting that title from, but yes, I, it's, I don't know. It's definitely titled mechanics. And yes. let me let me ask you this. No context. Mm-hmm. If you know that there's an X-Men story called Mechanics, spelled, just to be clear, M-E-K-A-N-I-X, who do you think it's going to be about? I, you know, X-Club, maybe? <laughs> maybe. This is a uh, bad Forge? title. Is, is it, is it going to be about Forge? Is it going to be about Danger and Dr. Nemesis? Like, is it... <sighs> I, no, I mean, we do know that Kitty Pride is, uh, you know, famously depicted on the back cover of Excalibur working on some circuitry. But what? Like, why call it this? I don't know. Why call it mechanics? We would have to ask writer Chris Claremont, who's known for being yes. good at X-Men uh, or penciler Juan Babilio, because man or Babio. Man, I'm just not. Go. Those double L's are killing me tonight, aren't they? That's <laughs> okay. I took three years of Spanish. I should know this one. Uh, but get it, Zach. One of one of these days, it'll come in handy. 
no, uh, but yeah, they wrote this in 2002, December of 2002. So this is running contemporary with the end of Chamber. These are happening at the same time. Well, and that does make sense because uh, the the purity group um, that does get introduced in Chambers Mini is also in this, um, except they're a l- little more prevalent uh, in this story because they're they're the main villains. Yeah, I mean, they are explicitly a mutant hate organization, mm-hmm. and they are using tactics that were a little weird and more sci-fi in the year of 2002, but in 2018 are commonplace. Yeah. Yeah. They're doxing people. Um, they're basically outing these, these people who they think are mutants that are working on a research project with a scientist on a college campus. Um, it's they are a targeted online hate group. And that would be so mm-hmm. interesting to see an X-Men comic about that today when that is a thing very prevalent in just culture and comics in particular. But in 2002, Chris Claremont didn't know what to do with it. I, I mean, we've just got to say right off the bat, there is a lot going on in this book. Um, it's dropping us into a world and into a version of Kitty pride that I think a lot of readers probably won't recognize if they weren't also reading Extreme X-Men. Are you talking about the part where Kitty Pride is working at Coyote Ugly to, to <sighs> afford her yes. apartment? Yes, and we d- we dealt with this right off the bat in the first episode, but Ki- Kitty going Coyote Ugly, it just is very strange, and it doesn't seem... To, I mean, hey, Chris Claremont, you created this character, so all respect, but I just don't get it. Like... The kitty that's in this series has, you know, has parts of this character that we've all come to know and love. But there is something just a little off about who this is as part of these uh, six well, issues. In, in I, the, I don't know. Is that your take I, as well? Yes, I think that something's a little off. But what may be attempting to justify that is right, wrong or indifferent in the 12 months of real time before this issue came out. Kitty lost both Colossus, who, while she wasn't dating, you know, still had a very deep affection for and connection with. And mm-hmm. she lost her father in the attack on Genosha. So right. she's yep. obviously going through some stuff. She is acting out to, to taking the Kitty Pride things to the extreme. Like someone says something bad about mutants instead of just yelling other racial slurs at them until they realize, Oh, this was a bad thing I did. She's getting into actual fights. Um, yeah. And we're also dealing with a, you know, post Sopranos. Every person has to have a therapist story. Oh yeah. So that is what this is, isn't it? Yeah. So Kitty is in mandated therapy. Um, which is a subplot throughout the book as she tries to deal with her father's death. Um, It's also her father's death is also coming back to her from people who hold him, hold her accountable for his bad actions um, on behalf of his business. I mean, there is a lot of, you know, intersecting story going on. It doesn't work all that well because the whole, the whole main plot essentially Mm. is Kitty's away from the X-Men. She is intentionally at university of Chicago 
trying not to be a superhero. She ends up uh, meeting with uh, Karma, uh, Sean Koiman, who is working as a librarian there. And they, you know, hang out. There's, there is some, you know, there are two panels of weird sexual tension between her and Karma. And I only say weird because A, the comic doesn't address the fact that Karma is an out lesbian woman. Like, it doesn't bring that up once at all, which would make all that, you know, what seems from an outside reader just to be some weird panel choices. Uh, No, guys, this is explicitly what's going on. But also, (laughs) Karma's boring in this. She doesn't do anything. Well, she's there so that Kitty has a friend. She's there so that there's, um, you know, there's a larger cast. um, And her possession skills come into play a couple times in the story. There's also a, an odd sort of NYX feeling to this because there are other new uh, characters shoehorned in here, like a, a telekinetic oh, um, who pops up a couple. Yes, Shola, um, who pops up a couple times throughout this story and becomes pretty important to it. Um, so you have these competing storylines that are all taking place. You have an investigation after Kitty saves an explosion in a lab that was caused by the purity hate group through a virus and then you also have the therapy storyline you also have what's going on with sean you also have what's going on with shola so there's a lot to keep track of and um i you're right i don't think it's really successful in in tying all those threads together i mean i maybe it's because i read them at the same time or maybe it's because they came out at the same time but you can't not compare this to that chamber miniseries because there's so many similar plot points to it. Yeah, they're doing very similar things. Oh, I forgot to mention that there's also a Sentinel invasion oh, yeah. in this as well. Like, there's just too much that well, is trying to happen. Not just Sentinel. It's, it's not. Not just regular, you know, 50 foot tall giant purple robots. These are wild Sentinels that Cassandra Nova made, the same kind that destroyed Genosha. Oh, which right. isn't really like that should be a bigger deal in this story than it is. Like you have to, you have to put the pieces together for that one. Like, Oh, this is the worst kind of Sentinel for Kitty right now, regardless of the fact that she didn't like know it or see it or anything like that. Yeah, there are, um, there's a, at least one allusion to that particular um, storyline before the actual Sentinel show up, but you're right. It's not, it's not tied very well no. to that. But yeah, there's so much going on here. And I bringing it back to Chamber, which also has a lot going on, but stays a lot more focused. Uh, Chamber yes. does things with nuance. There's an explosion that, mm-hmm. you know, has this whole investigation thing going in both of these stories. But not to spoil Chamber, because I think Chamber is best read if you don't know what's going to happen to it, because it's a very satisfying ending. In Chamber, the antagonist has like you struggle to hate or be mad or like you see a lot of you see the reasoning behind everyone's actions in that book even if you don't like their actions you honestly understand it it's it's a way to do Mm -hmm. the mutant metaphor for the future this is hey look this is this racist and they set up a bomb to kill all these people because they're different they're bad and that's not like if, if you want to bring the mutant metaphor into 2018, that's not the way that things are handled in America, at least. 
in in our in our current culture, that's not how these things operate. That's not what people deal with on a day to day basis. So if you're you know trying to use, let's say, uh, the mutants for a metaphor for the LGBTQ community, you're not necessarily worried about bombings and things like that. Now, some terrible tragedies have happened in today's day and age, but the more prevalent day to day threats are the you know like the doxing and the hate groups and the general attitude of, I don't like you because you're different and I'm going to be crappy to you because you're different. It's not a, you know, maniacally laughing villain who's so happy that her plan of setting off this bomb worked. Yeah. I mean, here's what I will say is that Claremont is definitely trying to inject a certain level Mm -hmm. of action to this that, you know, I was thinking a little bit as I was reading this about uh, Extreme X-Men expose, which has much more of a slow discourse about some of these topics um, and, and trying to have on the ground literal conversations about the mutant metaphor, whereas this is definitely trying to be action packed um, and there is a lot of action in it. But I agree that, you know, it, it doesn't ride high on nuance um, for sure. It's, you know, it's pretty blunt. You know who did it. You know how evil they are. And you know, you know, what the solutions to this problem will be and yeah, how to this solve is, them. This is a story that is weird to me. Like there's other elements that we haven't really touched on and we don't need to. Like the covers, the covers are like, all bad. Like covers. <laughs> Cecilia Calais covers are... Oh not good uh and and they they add to the confusion you know the the title the covers what is this series what does what mechanics does it be? be it's it's so that strange. doesn't make any sense it's not even a thing that happens in well, the comic what is the, is the name this is the only thing that i could figure out was that the the name is there because kitty is part of a team she re, she is referred to she says that the professor refers to her as his mechanic at some point so the team of students that are assembled to help him with this project that ends up exploding they're on panel for maybe two or three pages before the explosion they're the mechanics I don't know. Mechanics seems to indicate that we will be getting some sort of team. Um, but do you that, know, what I bet they could have called this to happens. be even more marketable and a better title. Go for it. What do you got? X-Men icons, shadow cat. Hey, Boom. Got it. There you go. <laughs> there you go, guys. This is your good title for your book. A plus. It tells you what you need. Easy marketing, right? Um, but yeah, this leaves something to be desired. So, um, when I'm thinking ranking, I'm, I'm starting to look around expose, um, just because it's, you know, it's later Claremont. Um, and it's, it's trying to pack a lot and it's not, don't feel like it's being very successful about it. Yeah. This is a story that I've heard a lot of people recommend and say, Oh, I really like that one guys. I'd love, I'd love to hear your reasons why because I don't get it. I really don't get it. I, I will say, I think the art is really successful in a lot of places. Like I don't love the art, but I think that it's talent and um, there's some really cool things going on in the artwork. And I, like I said, I'll give Claremont props for instead of just doing a lot of God, 
uh, what, what is it? God loves man kills Two, where it's a lot of characters talking at each other. He's trying to make it a little bit more action packed. So um, it, it does have some, some good stuff going on, but altogether it's still a bit of a mess. Yeah. Let's uh, let's look at ranking it. Cause I think you just brought up two good stories that are good uh, barometers. God loves man kills Two, which is another late Claremont kitty pride story. Is at one forty. I think this is better than that. This is much better than that. Um, I don't think it... it's better than expose at one seventeen. Okay. I, I mean, they're doing different things in different ways, um, but you could tell they're of, of a piece, you know, they're of a similar mindset. They're of a similar time. Um, yeah, I would go lower than that. Um, How do you feel about it compared to Poptopia? which is around the same time, another unsuccessful story, and also our other chamber story on this list, so we got to shoehorn that in somehow. Yeah, we didn't mention this before, but it is funny in the chamber mini that they bring up Poptopia and make fun I of love because that. of it. That's a perfect <laughs> touch, because if you don't know about Poptopia, it reads like, oh, this is some story that I just haven't read. But if you do, you know, oh my gosh, are they seriously referencing that? Yeah, and making fun of him for it. I think this is better than Poptopia. I mean, I really didn't like Poptopia very much, and I think there's some some cool stuff happening in this mini, um, even if it's a bit of a mess. I think um, it's... Hmm, what are you thinking? Oh, well, I don't even know Can if I, I like something? this. Can I say something? I like the I Lucifer story better, I think, where Blob and Unis rob banks, and it turns into like this crazy Silver Age alien story good because i thought i was going to have to make you agree with me that that adam x the extreme is back and things have never been deadlier story was better which is an objective truth oh no and that's then talk you down to exactly that point either right above or right below the bob and the blob and unis i lucifer story so no, I, I like that better i think that's more I, fun we're on the same wavelength because <laughs> mechanics which is a bad title and should feel bad is our new number 129 perfect and that will do it for this episode. I uh, want to thank again, Nir Ravel for going on and one listening to this. I know Nir's been a supporter of the Xavier files media empire for a long time now. So awesome uh, to get these requests. It's a good one. I'm glad that we can get more people to know that this chamber mini is very good. Go buy it guys. Ah, yeah, but absolutely. if you want to be like Nir, or near and suggest some really good underrated gems for us to talk about go on over to patreon.com slash xavier files if you support at the two dollar a month level or higher you can get like whatever rewards you want well whatever rewards are listed if you want a reward that's not <laughs> listed shoot me a message we'll figure something out uh but yeah. if you do at the two dollar a month level we'll make a whole episode about you and it'll be very nice and very special now comes the part of the show where we tell you where you can find us online. Adam, go. Uh, guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. I've got new pages coming out every Monday of uh, Bishon Jube's Attack on the Mansion um, at adamrec.tumblr.com and xavierfiles.com. Uh, it's really fun. I got, I think, the first 16 pages done now. So um, enjoy that. That's going to be going through December. And then uh, if you guys want to copy the last issue, head over to adamrec.bigcartel.com. Just $1 gets you an issue 
of the search for Bish and Jubes. Zach, where can people find you? Everyone can find everything I do on XavierFiles.com slash, just put a slash there. Your computer will auto do it for <laughs> you if you, you know, forgot and it'll be fine. But XavierFiles.com, that's the landing page for all the stuff I've got going on. You can also uh, go over to Twitter at XavierFiles and just listen to my inane rambling about X-Men stuff. <sighs> anyway, I think this was actually a good episode, <laughs> even though I just ended it on a very down note. But next week. Yeah, why so dour? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I want to let you all know that next week we have a special guest uh, coming on from the wild world of X-Men. His name is Ed Brisson. And we're going to be talking about some old man Logan. We're going to be talking about some extermination. We're going to be talking about some uncanny X-Men and just poke and prod him to see how much he gives up. Who knows? <laughs> but until then, this has been Battle of the Atom, and we hope you survived the experience. Get it!